0: All right, Cedar Mill, it is great to be with you. My name is Dave, and this marks the halfway point of our series called Transformed. If you've been with us, you know that for the last few weeks, we've been taking a journey through the book of Romans, stopping at some significant passages along the way. And today we come to perhaps our most important stop of the entire trip. In fact, for this stop, we're actually going to spend a few nights. We're going to spend a few weeks together looking at and exploring Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it. Turn to Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul has now finished expounding on the gospel, exploring the fundamentals of the good news. And now he's going to shift gears to talk about how the gospel of Jesus transforms the way we view and live our entire lives. Some might say that Romans 8 is the climax of this letter. One author I read this week said that if Romans had a soundtrack, that right at this point we would get the rocky theme song. Some of you know it. It would sort of start to build because that's where we are in this book. And what we're going to do as uh, we dive into Romans chapter 8 is we're going to find that it starts with a very familiar word, one of Paul's favorites, the word therefore. And it's a word that says, because of what I've said before, now this. Because of this truth, now this truth. And what Paul's been talking about in chapter 7 is the struggle of sin. Pastors Paul and Bethany Talked about sin last week from Romans chapter 6. But then in Romans chapter 7, Paul continues this subject. And what he's really talking about here in 7 is the struggle that those of us who have put our faith and who are followers of Jesus still face. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've experienced that that zeal of putting your faith in Jesus Christ and then thinking, man, I have God in my life and everything's going to be easier and all those sins and all those difficulties and all those struggles that I faced before, those are just going to fall away. It's going to be a piece of cake with Jesus on my side. But what Paul says is that what most of us find is that the struggles of this world, the struggles of living, living in this fallen, broken world, are hard and difficult, and they don't fall away as easily as we hope they will. At one point, Paul is expressing his own frustration with sin, and he says this, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing." What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And you can just hear Paul's anguish and his frustration. And what Paul is doing here is he's expressing a struggle that we all experience. And sometimes that struggle can weigh us down. Sometimes that struggle can really start to discourage us. Sometimes that struggle can even cause us to wonder, am I really a Christian but in our chapter today we find Paul's response to these thoughts and these feelings right here in chapter 8 he says the battle is real and the struggle is hard therefore remember this and here's how he begins there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Paul says since I continue to struggle with sin how much condemnation can I expect Since giving my life to Christ, I'm still wrestling and battling and fighting. Is there condemnation for me? And his answer is very, very clear. Here's how much condemnation. Zero, zip, zilch. The word condemnation, by the way, is a legal word. It's a compound Greek word, pretty simple, katakrima. Kata means against, Krima means judgment. In other words, how much judgment is there against me? How much judgment is there against you? And Paul's answer is simple, none, none. In other words, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, do not waste time sitting around wondering and wallowing in a feeling of condemnation. You are not condemned. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. So get about fighting the good fight because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection releases you from the penalty of sin, but it also releases you from the power of sin. And that is what Paul is going to tell us next. Verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, on your own, by your own strength and effort, you cannot overcome sin and live a righteous life. This is the frustration Paul is expressing in Romans chapter 7. I just can't get there on my own. But he says, there's another power. There's, there's something more powerful than sin that if you can tap into it, and you can, if you're a follower of Jesus, he says, there's a power that can overcome the power of sin, and he calls that that power, the law of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit. Let me illustrate it for you this way. This is, by the way, one of my favorite illustrations, because you guys might know that a long, long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, when I was in college. I was a physics major. I majored in physics. I knew a lot about physics. I really liked physics. Now, when my kids ask me to help them with their physics homework, I don't remember any of it. I know nothing, so I'm useless. But I did love physics at one time. And, and in physics, we have a law called gravity. It's a law you're all familiar with. We've all encountered it. It's, all, it's taken us down um, at some point in our lives. And, and yet, even with the law of gravity, we have these enormous airplanes that can fly up into the sky and through the air, don't we? In fact, do you know this? The largest airplane in the world is the Antonov 225. You should Google it. It's huge. It has a maximum takeoff weight of 640 tons. That means it can carry... 107 elephants, or 128,000 10-pound bowling balls. 640 tons can defy the law of gravity and fly up into the air. And if you're like me, maybe you've sat and watched airplanes take off into the sky, and you've wondered, how does that happen? It makes no sense. You're sitting on an airplane. You know you're going to take off. You know it's going to work. But you think, how does this? This doesn't compute. It doesn't add up. And I'm going to, to tell you how. Here's how it happens. Through a law more powerful than the law of gravity. Specifically, it's the law of aerodynamics called the Bernoulli principle. And basically what the Bernoulli principle says is that if air is going over the top of something at a faster speed than the air traveling beneath it, then there is an upward force. And this is what happens on the wings of an airplane. Because an airplane wing is curved, the air going over the top of the airplane wing is going faster than the air underneath. You got this, Amy Penn. You're going to pass your next physics test. And so there's this force upward on the airplane's wings. It's called lift, right? In other words, airplanes show us this very basic and simple principle that you can overcome the law of gravity by tapping into a law more powerful, this law of aerodynamics. And friends, in a similar way, Paul tells us today in our passage, you can overcome the law of sin and death by tapping into a law that is more powerful, the law of the Spirit. And the law of the Spirit is simply this. Where the Spirit reigns, sin flees. Where the Spirit reigns, sin flees. Where the Spirit is in control, sin has no control. Where the Spirit calls the shots, sin has no shot. And so the question for us is how does the gospel enable us to tap into the law of the spirit? Because the gospel makes the law of the spirit available to you and me. And here's how. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. That's, that's the rules. That's following the rules. That's trying to be a good person. That cannot free you from the penalty or the power of sin. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. A lot in there, but here's what Paul is saying. He's saying when Jesus became a sin offering for you, when he... Paid the penalty for your sin. When he took your place, when he justified you, when he made you right with God, it opened the door. He opened the door for the Spirit of God to come and take up residence in your life. Now that you're righteous, now that your sins are forgiven, the Spirit can come and live in you. In other words, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is not only that your sins are forgiven, But that now, because of that forgiveness, God sends his spirit to live in you. Friends, this means the power you need to live a righteous life that you could not accomplish by your own strength is available to you if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. But, Paul's going to tell us, we must learn to tap into this power we've been given. And he'll tell us how. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now, the word here, mind, in our language, it just means what we think, right? But in the scriptures, in the Greek, it doesn't just mean what you think. It means what you think and therefore how you live. It it refers to what your priorities are or where your focus is. That's where your mind is, where your focus is. And in a sense, what Paul is saying here is this. If you want to tap into the law of the Spirit, make it a priority to become friends with the Spirit. And how you become friends with the the Spirit and, and with anyone else is by taking an interest in what they are interested in. This is why he says... Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires, on what the Spirit likes, on what the Spirit is focused on, on what the Spirit enjoys, right? I actually have a good friend who understands this principle and has started to do this very thing. He knows, and some of you do as well, that I love disc golf, I really love disc golf. I've talked about it before. Some of you make fun of me, and that's okay. I love disc golf. It's the physics of disc golf that are amazing, right? I love to go out and throw discs and frisbees and watch them fly. There's something about it that is so relaxing and enjoyable for me. And this friend of mine, who hasn't really been into disc golf, has started to take it up. Why? Because He's trying to say, hey, I want to like the things you like. I want to enjoy the things you enjoy so that we can do it together so that we can grow closer in relationship. And this is what Paul is asking us to do with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, move towards the things that the Spirit is moving towards. And so that your relationship can grow, right? This is why he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Whatever is true. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is Paul saying, set your mind on what the Spirit loves. Because when you do this, your relationship with the Spirit grows. And then the Spirit draws close to you. You see, what people often miss is... That the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those aren't things that we try and achieve, that we try and do so that the Spirit will be happy with us or so that the Spirit will come close to us. No, these are things that are the result of the Spirit being connected into our lives. So the reality is this, when you get close to the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit starts to well up. In you. But when you engage in things that grieve the spirit or that the spirit doesn't like, then the spirit moves away from you and so do his fruit. Question. What if the greatest danger of sin was not the bad effect it could have on your life or on the life of someone else? What if the greatest danger of sin was that it, distanced you from the spirit of God what if the greatest danger of sin was that it distanced you from the spirit of God and all the fruit and all the power that he wants to offer your life you see the key to overcoming sin and tapping into the law of the spirit is to stay deeply connected to the spirit so how do we do this verse six The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who, who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. In these verses, friends, Paul says your mind, your life, your priorities are either going to be ruled and directed by the flesh or by the spirit. So so what is the flesh? What does it mean to be governed or directed by the flesh? Well, the best description I have found of this is from a guy who I love, a pastor by the name of J.D. Greer. And he says, someone whose priorities are governed by the flesh are focused on, on five things. And he says they're the five selves. You get focused on these five selves, and that means that you are governed by the flesh. It's a great indicator. I'll walk, I'll walk you through them. One, self-will. I want to be in charge of my own life, not him. What I want, not what he wants. Number two, self-glory. I want to give the credit not give the credit to God. I want people to see and recognize and be impressed by me. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever, are you ever tempted in that? Self glory. Number three, self gratification. I prioritize my pleasures and comforts above the will of God. This will make me feel good right now. This will satisfy and gratify me. That's self gratification. How many of us struggle with that? Number four, self righteousness. I am good enough to distinguish myself as a good person and earn my acceptance. And finally, number five, self sufficiency, a distinctively American quality. I have what it takes to make it in this world, and I can do it on my own, independent from God. I do not need his help. I am good enough. I am smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. That's a little Stuart Smalley for you guys. You guys are all too young for Stuart Smalley. That's okay. So that's the flesh. And Paul says it leads to death, and it cannot please God. But then, the other question is, then, then what does it look like to live a life governed by the Spirit? That's a life governed by the flesh. What about a life governed by the Spirit? Simple, just take the word self out and replace it with the word God. Not self will, God's will. What he wants for my thoughts and words and responses and actions. It's a mind and life focused not on self-glory, but on God's glory, where we long to give him the credit, where we long to see him be praised and worshiped and adored, not us. Not self-gratification, but God-gratification. This is going to get personal. Where would he, where would God take pleasure in the way I live? That's where you're seeking. I want God to take pleasure in the way I live, not me to take pleasure in the way I live. Not self-righteousness, but God-righteousness, where I know that I'm only good enough because of him and the work he's done for me on the cross. And finally, not self-sufficiency, but God-sufficiency, where I'm looking to and relying on the Lord to make it through every single moment of every single day. You see, friends, what Paul is saying is this. When our minds, when our lives, and when our priorities shift in this direction, away from self and towards God, the Spirit then draws close to us, and His power begins to surge in and through us, and there is this force, there is this lift that happens in us, and now we have the ability to overcome that sin that we have so frustratingly not been able to overcome on our own. That's the law of the spirit of life. And and Paul is so emphatic. You could almost put an exclamation point after every single one of these statements, but especially after this one in verse nine. Listen to this. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. You hear what Paul is saying there? He's saying, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you, period. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. That word lives, it doesn't mean occasional visitor. It doesn't mean drops in occasionally for tea or coffee or a snack or a soda. It means he dwells in you. He's a permanent resident, Friends, I don't know about you, but when someone comes to my house to be a resident, even if they just come for a visit, when they show up, when they're in my home, it changes the dynamic, doesn't it? It changes the way people interact and the way they live and the things they say, right? Now imagine this. What if the Holy Spirit came in for a visit into your house, into your life? Would it change you? Would it impact the way you think and act and the way you say and the way you respond to people? Yeah, and the Holy Spirit comes not just for a visit, but to dwell in in you. The question is, where will you let him live? Do you put him in the grandma apartment down in the basement where you never see him or interact with him? Or do you invite him into the very center of your home, into the very center of your life? See, the question is: will you turn to him? Will you rely on him? Will you surrender to him? Will you seek to stay deeply connected? to him. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in in you. you notice how passionate Paul is about the fact that the Spirit is living in you. He says it again and again. And I want to just offer you a couple closing thoughts from these last two verses. Number one, the Christian life is not working hard for gradual self-improvement. It's getting to know and learning to fully surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Friends, Some of you need to hear that because some of you are trying to fly the airplane of your life without the Bernoulli principle. You're running around and you're flapping your arms as hard as you can and you're doing everything in your own power to overcome sin and get your spiritual life off the ground. And all the while, all the while, God has given you an airplane and not just an airplane, an airplane with a pilot. And he's saying to you, Just surrender control and climb in because we can get off the ground if you will lean in and trust me. I love how C.S. Lewis says it in Mere Christianity. Last week, Pastor Paul quoted R.C. Sproul. This week, it's C.S. Lewis. And the quotes are so eerily similar. But listen to this from from, uh, C.S. Lewis. Christ says... Give me all of you. He's talking about surrendering all of our lives to Christ. Climbing in that airplane, following the Spirit, giving the Spirit control. Christ says, give me all of you. I don't want a certain amount of your time, a certain amount of your talents and money, or a certain amount of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me. The whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams, turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall. Shall become your heart. You see, friends, what Paul understands and what C.S. Lewis understands is that a changed life is the result of a changed heart. And a changed heart happens when we have deep intimacy with the Spirit of God and we surrender to and follow His lead. That's the first thing. The second and final observation is this In the midst of struggle, In the midst of sin, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of challenge, in the midst of struggle, remember that in Christ you are not condemned and this is not the end of the story. I say this because condemnation is a powerful thing. Condemnation is a really, really powerful thing. It can keep you at arm's length from the spirit of Christ It can cause you so much guilt and so much shame that you don't want to go anywhere near the Spirit. See, the enemy knows this. The enemy wants to fool you. The enemy wants to heap shame and guilt on you so that you walk away from intimacy and connection with the Spirit. And this is why Paul says there is no condemnation. And I bring this up, friends, because I know you because you're like me. And somewhere in your life, chances are that you're struggling. Struggling with depression or anxiety, struggling with failing health, struggling in your marriage, struggling with feelings of insecurity, struggling with lust or gossip or envy or greed or fear or worry or judgment or selfishness or superiority or some other secret sin that nobody in the world knows about. Hear these words again because they apply to any and all of that. There is now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and if you're a Christian, he is, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Friends, Paul is saying the battle ain't over. It's not finished. It's not done yet. It continues. And we know who's going to win in the end. God isn't done with you. And someday he will win the victory. That's the promise of scripture. So you hold on to that amidst your struggle, amidst the battle, amidst the difficulties that you face. Because this story is not over. And friends, to remind us of that truth and to remind us of the hope that we have and to remind us that there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Jesus gives us a gift, a meal that he says we are to celebrate together so that we never lose sight, so that we never forget who we are and the victory that's been won on our behalf and that we are no longer condemned and that the pathway towards victory over sin in our lives is simply through the gospel. And so in just a minute, friends, we're gonna share the Lord's Supper together. So if you need to pause the video and gather your elements, go ahead and do that because we are gonna share this meal and we are gonna remember that there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus.